Everlasting and holy God, may the words that I speak and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The sign that rose above the picket lines that day was quite unlike any other. You'll probably recall that there was a big labor strike of the Chicago Teachers Union back in 2012, I believe. An ugly eight-day stalemate between the union and Mayor Rahm Emanuel, both sides refusing to give an inch or concede on issues ranging from test scores to health benefits for teachers. As the entrenched parties dug their heels in ever deeper, there was no end in sight. But this sign that was held up was in plain view for everyone to see, and it didn't escape anyone's notice. Other teachers hefted cardboard placards that demanded equitable benefits and quality education, some of them attempting humor, their signs demanding, what's wrong with you? But high school math teacher Mike Konkoleski held the one and only sign that got the mayor's attention and demanded a response. It read simply, Rahm Emanuel likes Nickelback. <laughs> now, if you don't know, Nickelback is a hard rock band that was pretty popular about 15 or so years ago, but their mediocre and instantly forgettable sound has since rendered them definitively uncool. Most musicians at the top of the charts succumb to a similar fate in time first celebrated and later ridiculed. A blessed few retain their fame forever, but when you're at the top, there's no place to go but down. Anyway, this sign about Rahm Emanuel's fondness for Nickelback went viral when the media picked up on it, and the mayor's office suddenly found itself fielding questions from reporters about whether it was actually true. Did the mayor of Chicago really enjoy the stale chords, whiny vocals, and angst-ridden lyrics of a band that most angry adolescents had already outgrown? Did Rahm Emanuel really listen to Nickelback? In the midst of this labor strike that had already uh, discredited the mayor in the eyes of many voters, his office was forced to issue a public statement declaring that this particular attempt at character assassination by the math teacher Michael Konkoleski was categorically false. But Konkoleski renewed his assault over the next eight days of the strike, arriving at the picket line each and every day with a brand new sign. Rahm Emanuel likes Celine Dion. <laughs> Rahm Emanuel likes Michael Bolton. Rahm Emanuel likes Millie Vanilli. Personally, I have a soft spot for Michael Bolton, but I can take a joke. I'm not telling this story to make a statement here about the virtue of the strike, nor to suggest that this protest strategy was particularly effective, though to be fair, it did apply an odd kind of pressure uh, to the mayor, putting him on the defensive. But rather, it occurs to me that the use of humor and absurdity in this effort, the spirit 
that he brought to the picket line tells me something important about this math teacher. It tells me that he was not afraid. On the first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, a grand procession swept through the western gate of Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect and governor of Judea, rode tall upon his war horse, followed by a cohort of his finest soldiers. Trumpets blasted imperial hymns with great fanfare, but if anyone cheered, it was only to appease Pilate. No one was loyal to him. This imperial march is not recorded in scripture, but we can be reasonably certain that it took place. Students of Jerusalem's history know that it was customary for the Roman prefect who lived a few miles outside of the city in his own personal estate to arrive in Jerusalem just before the week of Passover. During Passover, the Jewish people, of course, celebrate their liberation from Egyptian slavery and oppression. So it's just the sort of festival that's likely to cause an uprising when their land is occupied by an oppressive force such as the Romans. So every year, the governor, Pilate in this case, uh, spends a few days in the city, bringing along a few hundred of his closest friends from the Roman military to ensure that everything goes smoothly. But just as Pilate and his retinue are arriving at the western gate, of course we know that another procession is taking place on the east side of town. Jesus, the wandering preacher, trots through the gate on the back of a small donkey. Now much has been said about Jesus riding into the city and how he subverts cultural norms by riding on such a humble steed, a beast so pitiful that Jesus' sandals might have scraped the ground as he rode it, flanked by followers who wave palm branches instead of swords and trumpets and weapons of war. Christ is a king, but he's not the sort of king that people are accustomed to. But for all the ink that's been spilled on the subject, I've never heard it said specifically that Jesus was making fun of Pontius Pilate on a more personal level. But what if he was? What if this bit of political theater was intended to be absurd, funny even, a joke made at Pilate's expense? Just as the governor comes riding in on this massive horse, Jesus rides on this little donkey, making a mockery of Roman posturing and a fool of Pontius Pilate. It was the ancient equivalent of holding up a sign that declared, Pontius Pilate likes Nickelback. Jesus continues to troll the governor when they meet face to face after his arrest in Gethsemane. Pilate asks Jesus if he's really the king of the Jews, an assertion that would be tantamount to treason. You say so, Jesus casually replies, turning Pilate's own words against him while refusing to answer the question. The interaction between these two men begs the question, who is really afraid of whom here? Who really wields the power? Jesus, despite the fact of being Pilate's prisoner, does not seem to be all that afraid. But for all of their bluster and shows of force, 
the Roman authorities and their lackeys wear their fear on their sleeves. It's palpable. Pilate is only in Jerusalem, escorted by hundreds of troops, because he's afraid that the people will revolt. According to some translations of the Gospel of John, it's said that a cohort of nearly 600 soldiers showed up to arrest Jesus, as if he were the Incredible Hulk. And in the middle of the night, no less, where no one can see. And once he's in custody, Pilate and the Roman uh, puppet king, Herod, keep trading him back and forth and back and forth, both of them afraid to deal with the political fallout of executing or even punishing a man so favored by the people. Pilate's wife tells him, referring to Jesus fearfully, to have nothing to do with that man after she had a nightmare about him. And in the end, Pilate washes his hands of the whole business, abdicating any responsibility. I won't say that Jesus was afraid, uh, was not afraid to die, but it wasn't the same kind of fear that poisoned Pontius Pilate and the other authorities. Jesus knew what he was about. He had a sacred purpose that he was willing to die for. Pilate, by contrast, was haunted by the paranoia of an insecure leader who clings to power and sees enemies everywhere. Assassins lurking in every shadow. Uprisings in every crowd of people. In his play, Henry IV, Shakespeare articulates this anxiety that weighs upon fearful kings and keeps them awake at night. Canst thou, O partial sleep, give thy repose to the wet sea boy in an hour so rude, and in the calmest and most stillest night, with all appliances and means to boot, deny it to a king? Then happy, low, lie down. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Strong leaders are not afraid of change. But leaders who only care about their own power are insecure. They're terrified, paranoid, certainly unable to take a joke, and quick to stamp out anything that threatens the status quo. There was an exchange last month between a self-styled comedian on Twitter and a supposed legal representative from the Olive Garden chain of family restaurants. Having observed that places like Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods have committed to limiting their sale of firearms, the Twitter user Seinfeld2000 posted something that could be read as a joke in poor taste or rather a clever commentary on the sheer easy availability of firearms. He wrote, Respect to the Olive Garden for no longer selling AR-15s at all their locations. Afraid that this would hurt their image, the Olive Garden posted a cease and desist notice in response to the dumb joke. Well, supposedly. They've since denied that their legal team had anything to do with it, but that could be a PR spin given the way uh, people reacted to their response. It strikes me that the very existence of public relations teams actually says a lot about fear of public opinion. Of course, in regimes like North Korea or Syria, 
and the Roman Empire for that matter. Leaders don't need PR experts or lawyers. They just kill anyone who disagrees with them. And they cling to their power jealously, afraid to lose it, refusing to give it up. Kim Jong-il of the so-called hermit kingdom seems to be obsessed with the idea that someone's going to invade his country or try to kill him in his sleep. So he builds a nuclear arsenal to deter anyone from even thinking about it. Bashar al-Assad of Syria has demonstrated a willingness to destroy his own country if it means staying in power. And we're now witnessing a pretty dangerous trend in global politics as international leaders like Xi Jinping of China and Vladimir Putin of Russia stack the deck in their own favor, removing or disregarding presidential term limits. President Trump has also suggested in passing that maybe we'll try that someday in America. Pilate, a tyrant with ambitions to not only stay in power but to climb the imperial ranks, has every reason to maintain the status quo. He doesn't want anything to change. He doesn't want to rock the boat. And most of the players in this story are in a similar position. King Herod, for instance, with his cushy sinecure of puppet leadership, or the Sanhedrin and other temple authorities kept on a long leash by the Romans and living comfortably. They don't want anything to change. They fear change, and Jesus has come to bring change. There's a certain irony in this story. Pilate ultimately had nothing to fear from Jesus. In the end, it was the very cruelty that Jesus preached against and tried to put a stop to that did Pilate in. Pontius Pilate, paranoid and afraid and always trying to instill that same fear in others, was eventually reported to his superiors in Rome for needlessly terrorizing the populace. He was deposed, sent back to Rome to account for his actions, and never heard from again in the annals of Roman history. Had he listened to Jesus, been a little more kind, more compassionate, instead of fearing the change he represented, Pilate would have been much better off. Back when my brother and I were still writing and recording music together, he'd penned a song called Dragon Rising about a young boy in Tokyo whose family was killed by the Japanese mafia, the Yakuza. He grows up an orphan living in the streets, falls into a life of crime, and ends up climbing its ranks until he one day finds himself an old man, having reached the very top of the Yakuza crime syndicate. And having become the very thing he once hated and feared, he reflects on the dangers, real and imagined, that keep him awake at night. Not quite Michael Bolton material, but my brother's always been ahead of his time. These are the words he wrote. Locked in this tower, I hold empire's key, assassin's cue to steal what I have seized. These spires of chrome once rose beyond my grasp, but now I'm here, a traitor to my past. Threats from without, treason from within. Power's a spiral that can never end. 
The intention, of course, behind that last line is that the powerful always crave more power, a spiral that can never end. But that cycle can be challenged, even broken, by people who aren't afraid of change. Yesterday morning, over a thousand people marched through downtown Glen Ellen to protest needless gun violence. It was a mighty showing, just one of 800 around the country, so many people braving the cold to make sure their voices were heard. It was my privilege to participate, as I know it was for many of you. We held our signs aloft, demanding fewer bullets and more books in classrooms and so on. My favorite sign, though, was held by a young girl who stood on the side of Main Street as we marched by, which declared, this wouldn't fly at Hogwarts. <laughs> Marching with these people, I felt strong. I felt hopeful. There was, I confess, a brief moment of weakness as we marched past the Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> as I was tempted to abandon the whole enterprise for a hot cup of coffee, but I held fast. This march, all of the marches around the country were, of course, inspired by what happened earlier this month when high school students all over America and beyond stood up and walked out of their classrooms at 10 o'clock in the morning. And 17 minutes later, they returned one minute for every student killed at the Parkland Massacre in Florida. Many of them were told they'd face consequences if they walked out, detentions, suspensions, write-ups, and so on. But they didn't complain. They didn't seem to care. Because they weren't afraid. The punishments they faced were small crosses to bear for the big changes that they wanted to see in the world. Jesus' cross, of course, was much bigger, heavier, a towering, gruesome thing. And even knowing that he'd have to carry it before long, that his head would wear the crown of thorns, he could still make a joke at Pilate's expense because he wasn't afraid of him. It occurs to me that in some ways Jesus wore the crown of thorns more lightly than many kings wear crowns of gold. And even as we march toward Golgotha together this week and beyond, we are not afraid either. In the words of William Blake, to quote one last poet, my mind is not with thy light arrayed. Thy terrors shall not make me afraid. Amen.